Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Maybe the miners. Sure. They're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. Of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. He rode a blazing saddle, he wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. Howdy do, pen biters. This here episode is a huckleberry above a persimmon I snore. Sot down, pour a glass of Old Orchard, post the pony with your ears, and wake snakes with us. Let's have some full chisel fun sakes alive. <laughs> what do you think I just said? Something about hello. <laughs> yep, that, that is actually the gist of it, yes. I'll say it one more time in our modern English. Hello, pen biters. This episode is a cut above, I swear. Sit down, pour a glass of whiskey, pay up with your ears, and make a ruckus with us. Let's have some fun with everything we've got, for God's sake. That's that's <laughs> what I just said. But it was much more fun in cowboy talk. But get yourself a cowboy slang dictionary. It's a perfect waste of time. Tell you. <laughs> So anyway, this is Bite the Pen. I'm Jen, and sitting on the other side of the saloon is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hello. Howdy. <laughs> Howdy. <laughs> Howdy do. How, how are you kicking in your spurs? I don't know. There was this one dance in our Spanish troupe where we had these little red boots with spurs on them. So when we stomped around, it was like the whole ching, 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 ching. It was so <laughs> scary to have a child wearing those but they were cute <laughs> i i dig it what was the question yeah i'm fine how are you <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty good i think it's probably a little bit obvious what we're going to be talking about today but i think we should break into it before our pen biters ride out of town sorry <laughs> there's a couple more that will be flowered throughout the script just ignore it I think Jen is correct. If you didn't catch it from our introduction, you might surmise that we're either talking about Texas politics, which seems unlikely on our podcast. <laughs> we are more likely talking about the Western genre. Mm. More specifically, the Western film genre. Is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, there was a few reasons for that. I think many genres we will explore in the future, but the Western genre is a very uniquely American and usable genre. Mm -hmm. They're iconic, right? I mean, if you think of the Western, you're thinking of the shootout, the saloon, the small town, the train robbery. And it was made infamous by our own film system. Because at the birth of our silent era, 
of filmmaking, the West as a history was also being understood and sifted through because it was weird. It was considered the American frontier. It still is. It was the last part of our country to be explored. And there's a lot that goes behind that, including major storytelling, as every historic event will tell us. So I might say that <laughs> the events of the Western frontier are kind of the same as the Western genre. Because if you think Western genre, you're thinking of time and place, right? Would you agree that those are the two markers of the genre? Because otherwise you can't, I mean, the Western genre itself is so malleable that you can't, we'll talk about story patterns that reoccur, but you can't really pinpoint anything else about that genre that makes it the genre, except the setting in the West yeah. and the time, which according to some historians is basically between the 1860s and the 1890s. Some might say the end of the Civil War to like the early 1900s when film is being made for the first time. History ends and filmmaking begins in America. It's a beautiful dance. One could say it's almost like a square dance. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. A <laughs> hundred thousand points. That was beautiful. You have permission to turn off this episode. <laughs> no, no. Please have more comments like that. Then I should clarify, geography-wise, the West, this is cute. I liked it from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It described it like this. It is that vast stretch of plains, mountains, and deserts west of the Mississippi that has loomed so large in American folklore, a whole society operating just outside the law. Mm. <laughs> we need a whip sound here. <laughs> I think that was perfect because you could list the states that were sort of involved in the westward expansion, but really it's everything west of the Mississippi, right? Because the east was settled. We had just finished the Civil War, so the north and the south were like, <laughs> That's how they be. So the best thing you could do is sort of distract the country by saying we can mm. expand west and we should expand west, maybe. I don't know. Mm. There's some pros and cons. Yeah. The most notable con being that there people. were people already there. <laughs> yes, indeed. And you're going to see that this is one of our major plot patterns, which is the cowboy versus Indian trope, because that was the first and foremost conflict. It's funny because many dated historians would sort of overlook that because they want to romanticize the idea of conquering a new frontier. And it was. It was romantic in the fact that like they had to endure death and hardship and battles and brutality. Yeah. It's so brutal, right? We were talking about true grit. This is the true yeah. grit. Yeah. But it's really easy to be like, well, they were just another hurdle. As opposed to being like, maybe it was their land and we should have dealt with that better. In general, it is considered a genocide. We don't have, I mean, it's hard to tell because when you compare it to other historic events, it's like, well, they gave them a chance. Like they gave them reservations. They drafted treaties. It wasn't an all out massacre, although those did happen. Those who fought back were massacred and those who didn't and did it diplomatically, they lost their way of life and they were relocated that's not an answer just the the sheer amount of people who were killed for one specific reason that's it yeah modern yeah. historians agree with that and we need to start calling it that but anyway that was one of the big events that iconicized the west the next one maybe would be considered the gold rush the gold rushes mm -hmm. i should say the california being the the mm -hmm. big one in 1849 Somebody hit it big with gold and they're like, let's try to keep this a secret. But of course, that didn't happen. <laughs> Good luck with that in the West. Right? 
thousands of Americans and I think Spaniards flooded to the West within the next year. It was crazy amounts that flooded to the West after the gold rush. Wow. Which would sort of speed up the whole settlement idea, right? The more people you get, the more sustainable it needs to be. Right. You have to have commerce and civil not civility i mean you need that too but you need a civil <laughs> service available otherwise it's just anarchy yeah exactly and many wouldn't find gold so what would they do they would have to either return or find a way to live in this new land right the next one which is a fun one the continental railroad trains <laughs> I didn't know you were such a big enthusiast for trains. I'm really not. Really like I'm it. really not. But nerds make it sound so fun. So this one's a big deal because it constructed between 1863 and 1869. It ran from Iowa to California. Sorry, in your direction, it's you can't see me. I'm pointing to this way and then that way, which is mid-country to the west. Mm. The Iron Horse, right? The Iron Horse. Is that what it was called? I think it's something like that. The Iron Steed. I don't know. There was some term for it. Like, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's legit because before that you had horses, you had covered wagons, maybe a stagecoach. And that would take, well, like, I don't even know, months? I'm sure it would take months, if not weeks. I don't, I don't know. But with one train ride, people of the East could just hop on a train west. Like getting a railroad in your town meant becoming a city as opposed to a settlement because it brought so many people in. People had to buy stuff. It just, they became hubs of the West. Isn't that still kind of true today? Because I'm thinking of Las Vegas, New Mexico. The old train still runs through there and it's a big deal to have people stay at the hotels. and Definitely. There's something fascinating about, what do you call it, the train towns? What are they called? Rail towns. Rail towns. Yeah. And a lot of Westerns will talk about rail towns too. Yeah. So other than those big three things, I think maybe the last one could be considered cattle empires, cattle ranching and cattle mm. grazing, like the rights of who gets the land to mm. graze, which is actually still going on today. There's a lot of you know open country that wants to be designated for grazing. And there's a lot of interesting mm. arguments behind that. I mean, I can see why, mm. but I'm also... Trying to understand the politics behind that. I, I think it has to do with land ownership too. But in the West, that would be a big deal because if you could grow cattle, then you control the meat. And if you control the meat, you basically have agriculture in your back pocket. So you would become wealthy very quickly. If people didn't eat meat as much, that industry <laughs> would probably benefit from that, actually. I agree. Yeah. But back then, you know, it was more sustainable to eat meat one day than to grow thousands of potatoes for that same day you know what i mean there was more um yeah turnover i suppose especially if you're literally traveling across, yeah. across country in a wagon and you're not staying in one particular place as much as possible you have to have something to eat that's on the go exactly and many many of the westerns including maybe one that some that we picked or maybe not have grazing cattle ranching Cowboys, that's where the term cowboys come from. Mm. Those who ushered the cattle or cowboys. Who knew? <laughs> mm -hmm. So that'll be iconic of the Western genre as well. But speaking of the genre, this is going to be my point. As yes. soon as all of that was done, the genre began. Actually, it could even be considered during the period that the Western genre was born. I don't understand quite 
why that is. I think partly because America liked the idea of using the West as propaganda. Mm. Westward expansion was a romantic idea that brought real men to do real work. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm doing like the gun ho motion. <laughs> I th- maybe that's part of it. They wanted the butchness of America to be concrete and part of that was to be found in the west where you had to survive or you would die right makes sense yeah i mean kind of and i'm sure that's not the only reason i'm sure they wanted people to go out there conquering new lands financially a big deal yeah Yeah. financially agriculturally culturally a great amount of culture to be found out there as well theoretically they started romanticizing some events and some people and the earliest form of that was called the dime novel. Have you heard of these? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah, of course. You did a lot of research already on the West. You probably know so much more than I do. It's fascinating because it came out with like the newspaper, right? You get these mini stories about fictionalized events that may or may not have happened. But it's interesting because the readers took it as truth. This is where you get the big deal about the outlaw or the sheriffs that took on a whole gang the iconic Jesse James or Billy the Kid, even lawmen like Kit Carson, like whatever the romance of it was, it became a staple for readers. And they would be more interested in those than they would in like the newspaper. They would recreate the stories and they would find these plot tropes that worked really well, romance sometimes, or the big shootout, whatever it was, it just happened over and over again. And they called them dime novels because they were short and they were cheap. Yeah. And then after that, they had theatricals that sort of mimicked the dime novel stories. Things like melodramas, if you remember, like the melodrama, it's very mm-hmm. exaggerated. I don't know what to call melodramas, right? Like you throw marshmallows at the bad guy and you cheer on yeah. the hero. So out of that like melodramatic theatrical era, you get the Wild Buffalo Bill shows and those traveled and became super, super popular. Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley, yeah, that was a big one. The other one was uh, Custer's Last Dance, the Battle at mm-hmm. Little Bighorn. yeah. It, it's just very interesting that it sticks out so much. That little piece of history is just so recognized. And film wasn't invented quite yet. So how else are you going to understand? If you're not from the West and you've never heard of the Western genre, how else are you going to know about these stories? Unless there's a traveling show that tells you that these wild things are happening in your own country. Yeah. Really quickly, novels, of course, are a big one. They introduce more of the depth that we're going to be talking Mm. about in some of our movie picks. Rather than just having the archetypal or the flatness, we start exploring character and Mm. setting more. For example, one of the most selling novels for its time was The Virginian. And I think it was that author that introduced The Walk Down, which is when two Mm. typically cowboys approach each other and draw. They draw little pictures. They draw houses and <laughs> ponies. Ready draw. All right, yeah. what are you going to draw? <laughs> well, I'm going to draw my sunset. <laughs> They're very good at Pictionary uh, back in those days. If only that were the case. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you mean they draw guns? Oh, so different. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that was yeah. the appeal, right? The manly men showing power in a lawless frontier Hmm. that's what readers want and i'm sure it's a great story i actually have no idea really what it's about yeah cool well that is i think a really clear 
and like poignant way of looking at the history because obviously there's so much going on in between these events you laid out and even in the short time between the dime novels and actual novels so yeah i think that's i mean you covered a lot of ground and you know 30 years is not that long all of this is happening quite quickly yeah that's good because the format we're going to be talking about also happened quite quickly Hmm. As soon as those moving pictures became a thing in the East with the Edison Company, the first thing they did is make a plot-driven movie about a train robbery. The very first Western, technically the first film made. There you go. So again, that square dance of the <laughs> Western genre and the historic West is beautifully depicted here in film. Interwoven like the blanket of a steed. <laughs> that was lovely, too. Thank you. <laughs> Grand harmony and weaving. Yes. Just like the film and the Western. Because the Great Train Robbery, 1903, that's when it came out. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that hit the audiences, I think Hollywood was established only a few years after that. All the filmmakers flooded to the West because it was open spaces, more sunlight. Mm. You kind of get away from all the taxation of the East. And Mm. it's literally the freedom of the West that lets us hear about the freedom of the West. Interesting. Or see the freedom of the West because its grandiose setting was not only accurately the West, but the genre itself was the Western. Mm. What a beautiful way of starting an art form. Yeah. With already made stories. I'm sure it was like the easiest thing in the world to do. Not like easy, easy, but like pretty easy. You know what I mean? Based on what you just said, it's easy to see how the film industry in Hollywood or the Hollywood film industry can be how it came into being what it was. At the high point of the industry, like in the 40s and 50s, how grand it was and how ornamental it is and romanticized it is. It makes a lot of sense that it's derived from something like that, where that's what the whole thing was. That was what it was all based on. Exactly. And viewers Mm. ate it up. Like they couldn't generate Westerns fast Mm. enough. I think it was something like over 30% of Hollywood's movies were Westerns and they realized it. And that's I think that's what birthed the hmm. B-movie idea. It was such in demand that they would recycle setting, props, locations, even footage. Like they would take footage from other <laughs> films and just throw it in there. Because if you had like Battle with the Indians, yeah. it was just like, just throw that in there because they want that. And they hmm. understood that there were patterns. Hmm. And the more they recognized the pattern, the easier it was to produce B-movies. And there's an audience there ready for it. So it's not even like they needed to put more effort into it than they needed because there's already a hungry audience waiting for it and things like the dime novel the novels and buffalo bill shows they provided the content all the audience helped hollywood do is recognize the patterns and demand more (laughs) and demand more yes yes which brings us what should bring us to the conversation of what are these patterns that we're talking about like the western genre patterns specifically let me i you know i was thinking just just now I was wondering what the Western story patterns are. You sounded so serious. <laughs> That's an excellent question, Jen. I mean, that I came out of nowhere. How did you know I wanted to talk about that? Let us all gather around the campfire and listen to the story that you will tell us. Mm. Once upon a time, <laughs> there was a man. Of course. And this man said words. And people listened to the man. Because he was a man. Because he was a man. (laughs) This man is an author. Mm -hmm. 
His name is hmm. Frank Grubber. Is that how you would say that? I would say Gruber. Frank Gruber. Yeah, that sounds right. You're usually right about pronunciation. <laughs> anyway, he was the one that proposed that there were seven basic Western genre plot patterns. And I think it's kind of correct. I don't know. It seems more correct than anything I've, I've read so far. Hmm. I'm just literally going to kind of list them quickly because we're going to talk about some of these patterns specifically with our movie selections in our discussion. Hmm. And again, this is his theory. You may agree and you may disagree. If you're a Western enthusiast, I'm sure you have your own patterns that you can take away. But he says one of them is called the Epic of Construction. And this is actually true historically. This one I totally agree with because it involves the building of a railroad or a dam or something like big industrial through a small Western town, a Western town that's usually depicted as the good guys, the protagonists, because the innovations of the technology can be antagonistic. They could disrupt their way of life. They can be bringing in money that they don't want or influence they don't want. Some movies that depict that idea are Blazing Saddles, are <laughs> Very nice. Mel Brooks comedy later on in the 70s. That's about that, right? There's a big railroad tycoon that wants to just get rid of this town so the railroad can go through it. Can you think of any others? I don't know. That was just the first one. Mm, no, but I do think that that pattern is the one that's closest to the Western that I'm writing i think that that one fits it the best which i think is interesting because i didn't really think about it in terms of a pattern but now that i see these patterns i'm like oh yeah totally so i definitely can see the allure of this pattern exactly so the next one the ranch story which i think produced some of my favorite westerns ranchers against rustlers this one could go either way. Sometimes the ranchers can be the good guys. Sometimes they can be the bad guys. Uh, rustlers, by the way, sorry. Rustlers are people who steal cattle or livestock. Mm. And this one's used in, for example, in Lonesome Dove. Because rustling is a big deal. People are working hard to keep their livestock. And if people are constantly stealing or like attacking the cattle drive, then it, you know, it's impossible to do anything. The Empire Story, which is basically the same as the Epic of Construction, in my opinion. It's like big money, big empires coming in, doing their thing. Sometimes that's building something or establishing something. It could be good. It could be bad. It, I don't know. You know? I don't know. You know? I mean, Taming the West is one of the grittiest stories you can tell. And those people deserve... I mean, they're not always good people. They have to do really bad things. But, you know, once everything is, like, settled and easier to do, it's like, oh, all these people from the East come in on their trains and their money and they just take over everything that they worked for. I could see that being a problem. I do see that. Ooh, I like this next one. The Avenger Tale. I would always consider that a smaller scale story for the movie format because you get to do more of a character study in this way because it's about righting a wrong on behalf of a person other than the hero. So if you know the premise of True Grit, which we will talk about, that is absolutely the Avenger tale. You're writing a wrong that can't be righted by the law, meaning the law is not helping. So they have to sort of hire a vigilante most of the time. The quick and the dead. This could be an aside, but that's an example of taking a story pattern and bringing something completely new and refreshing because the hero, the lone hero, we're going to talk about more that trope. 
it can be played by a woman so easily. And it was in The Quick and the Dead. It translated perfectly. Without distraction, there was no like romance that was pushed in your face. It's not like they tried to like coddle you into, oh, let's ease you into this idea of the woman being a lone hero. No, 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 no. They use this pattern of the Avenger tale and they make it about a woman. I would write like that because it worked. And I don't, I, yeah, to this day, it's still my favorite Western, so. I love it. Good aside. (laughs) We definitely continue talking about these as we talk about the films, especially the the ones I think that we really are into are ones that are going to come up a couple times. What's next on the list? They, uh, he, the dude. The dude. (laughs) Gruber. Grubber. Gruber. (laughs) Calls the fifth one Custer's Last Stand. But I'm going to be calling it Cowboys versus Indians. I'm sorry. I can't help it. Yeah. That's what it is. It's literally Cowboys versus Indians. Totally. Any conflict, right, having to do with natives, it could be as gritty as, what did they used to call them? Raids. It could be as gritty as mm. historic raids. And it was, and they were just mm. massacres. You, either the tribes went to the soldiers and they massacred them there, or the soldiers came to the tribes and they massacred mm. them there. There were so many raids happening. Mm. So it could be something as gritty as that to something like making a treaty and proposing it to the chief saying, we're either going to have war or we're going to relocate you. Yeah, great. <laughs> great options. It's a range of stories, but it, it, yeah. it's basically white man versus the, the native. The native. Hmm. That's in a lot of Western. Oh, and I did list. Oh, yeah, I did have a little bit of a list here. Uh, Broken Arrow. That's an earlier mm. one with Jimmy Stewart. That's actually quite good. I liked it. I mm. watched it. It was really nice. good. Did they remake that one? Or is that something else? Yeah. Or there is a movie, a modern movie called Broken Arrow. I don't know if that's what it's about, though. Okay. Okay. Dances with Wolves. Classic. Yeah. And the highest grossing. I think for a while it was the highest mm. grossing Western. And then Brokeback Mountain came out. And they were <laughs> like, oh, that's the most high earning. <laughs> Dances with Wolves. That was so yesterday. <laughs> Talk about gay cowboys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Two more. We promise. And these are very, very similar. The outlaw story. We're mm. following the outlaw. And they are typically the protagonist somewhat heroic maybe redeeming in some ways Mm. but they do have the grit quality of Mm. the outlaw of the vigilante i take the law into my own hand i'm usually a gunslinger you gotta be otherwise you'll die yeah and i i would imagine there was a lot more of these in actual history and then in Mm. the genre itself than Mm. there was the next one which is called the marshall story the same Mm. pattern but following the marshall or the Mm. the law sheriff yeah. And examples of Outlaw Story, Jesse James, Billy the Kid. There's a few renditions of those iconic characters. The Marshall Story. The biggest example for that is Wyatt Earp, the story of mm. the Earp Brothers. Excuse you. Do you need a roll aids? Sorry. That's not my joke. <laughs> I didn't write that joke. Really? Oh my gosh. Uh-uh. Hilarious. <laughs> and that one's going to be told so much. I think that's the most really? adapted story maybe not i could be making that up but the shootout at the ok corral at Uh, tombstone mm -hmm. have you heard of that yeah Yeah. Yeah. that will have so many renditions it's kind of hilarious and they do a live show do they if you go there they have live shows of it so they they act it out i mean it's a thing people really are into i don't that's hilarious 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing with Battle at Little Bighorn and the Alamo. The Alamo. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. yeah. So those are the seven story patterns based on the list from Grubber. Gruber. Now you got me saying it. <laughs> Sorry. Is there anything else specifically from that list that we should cover? No, that's all. The only other thing I want to mention before we jump into our movie discussions is a general thesis. I started doing this for our episodes, which is I want to understand what I'm trying to say when I talk to you about our themes. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I always want to like have this conclusion that could be entirely wrong, but it's what I got out of my research. Mm. And you're always welcome, by the way, to disagree with the thesis, because maybe that's not what you think. Mm. And I would love to hear your responses. She means me and all of you, everyone. No, just Jen. I just want to hear about just, Jen. Just, just me. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I don't care what you all think. <laughs> now she sounds like a podcaster. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> all right, lay it on us. I would love to hear what all of you think. Good. So this is my thesis. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. With its mythic and embellished history, the American frontier becomes a perfect setting and subject for a budding film genre. Okay, that one you can't contest because that's obviously true, right? Yeah. <laughs> but this next part is, I think, an interesting addition. There is this MIT lecturer that I listened to like mm. so many times. He was very knowledgeable about the Western genre and Hollywood in general, actually. His name is David Thorburn. Mm-hmm. And what he taught is that the Western is a screen on which American values are projected, tested, and transformed. Yes, that's what I think that's what I'm getting from all my research Mm. is that this template can be used for any moral, any value system, character study, whatever it is you want to say, the Western genre can say it for you. And it typically will project American values. Which I, I think is very interesting because there is a whole subgenre of the European Western and we have Italian Westerns. And I mean, there are worldly Westerns, but I think that that's still true. They still typically reflect American values. And that's pretty unique. We are going to do a thing now. I don't know why I'm talking this way. (laughs) What we're going to do next (laughs) is talk about these different movies that we picked and we're going to go by era. We only have so much time and we know that you have lives so you can't listen to like an eight hour podcast about this. So we really picked out very specific films for each era. Charlotte's going to give us a little bit about the era and then We will discuss two films in that era, and we'll go through three eras. So we're going to be talking about six movies, and then we'll talk a little bit at the end about the Western genre as a whole. So do you want to get us started on the early era? Heck yeah! (laughs) I'm going to leave out so many things, but just as an introduction to each era, it's good to know the biggest events that sort of define the Western genre. Definitely. So during the silent era, we get our first Western star, William Hart. 
And he's credited for bringing out the good bad guy trope, the lone hero, or mm. maybe the anti-hero, some would call him, meaning the outlaw who is good-hearted, or the lone ranger. The criminal with the heart of gold. <gasps> That's a good one. Second name you need to remember, John Ford, the director to pioneer the Western genre in Hollywood and in other places. Hmm. He did films other than Westerns, but the most he did were Westerns. And he was really famous for working with John Wayne specifically. But he would also work with Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda. Those were his other two big actors. And one of the most important movies that he did was Stagecoach in 1939. That's a big one because it was the first time they used Monument Valley, for example, mm. as a setting. And that setting is going to be used in so many Westerns later on as well. Hmm. And it was John Wayne's breakout role. The legend was born. And the last thing I want to mention, and you've already mentioned this, which is the golden era of the 30s, 40s, and the 50s. Hmm. And some of that has to do with wartime stuff. World War II is during that. The Red Scare is during that. Like I said, it's a malleable genre where values are just mm -hmm. projected onto these templates. And it's successful, right? Our, actually, our two choices for this early era are going to demonstrate that perfectly. And I think there are movies in this list that will reflect that on a deeper level and some on a more surface level, but they will be affected by things like that, even if it's in the background for True Grit. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's indirect connection to all these things. So it's very much interconnected. Heck yeah. I would call all of yeah. our movie selects the A. I mean, when they say A and B movies, it, I think it has to do with budget and a little bit of depth. Our selections are mm. A-list movies. Lots of money backing them up. A lot of good writing, which... Actually, mm -hmm. I think is a testament to the novels that they're based on. Most of our movie selects are based on novels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. We just didn't have time to read six novels in a month. No. So. <laughs> and I'm still convinced that the movie genre is the best form for this genre. Agreed. The visuals and the dialogue are meant for this format. And the music. <gasps> How did I forget that? The music. <laughs> <laughs> well... Shall we begin? Our first film that we'll discuss is called The Oxbow Incident. It's a true, true classic film, let alone Western film. I'm going to give a brief synopsis. I went a little bit deeper with the synopsis because I think it's important and it's a very basic film in a good way, not like you're basic in a bad way. So the story takes place in Nevada in 1885. When word comes that a local has been killed, a rancher, his friend leads a mob of justice-seeking men to go after the culprit despite the pleas of a few law-minded objectors. And the lynching mob comes across three outsiders who they accuse of the murder and the theft of the cattle and of the cattle rancher. So debate and discussions ensue. And then finally, there's a corrupt major in the group and he leads the mob into lynching the three men. Shortly after that, word comes from the outside that the man that they thought was dead was not and is not, and that his attacker has been caught and taken into custody, and it's all said and done, you know? So really what you have is boredom, resentment, and a corrupted major cause that, that caused the mob to lose their grasp of civility. 
And by the end, four men are dead because the major takes his own life at the very end, which, yeah, I agree with that. The last scene of the film is all of the men from this group in the saloon listening to someone read the, listening to the main guy read the letter of the main dude that was lynched. And it was a letter to his wife. And they start up a collection to help support his family because they just moved there. But the damage is done. And despite all of this, and despite all of the accusations in the letter, the man says that he pities the men that did this to him because they will have to live with it for the rest of their lives. So in other words, it's super depressing and messed up at the end. You're left not feeling good. And I, I do want to mention on the sidebar that endings in Westerns are very specific. I mean, endings in other films can just kind of be like a wrap up, but these are very specific and sometimes heavy handed endings. And this is like an ending that stays with you. <laughs> She's crying. <laughs> I'm just remembering the movie. I mean, Henry Fonda's performance of reading the letter Mm. And then deciding, and we'll talk about like maybe the ending a little bit, deciding what to do in the end about it is so heartbreaking and beautiful. Yeah. So The Oxbow Incident is a novel. Uh, it was written by Walter Van Tilburg Clark, quite the name. And it was published in 1940, which is a very significant year. And the book, in a lot of ways, obviously, is a study of the psychology of a mob and corrupted leadership. And because of this, because of its popularity, because of the topic, it was read as a parable for fascism, obviously. And the turnaround from the book to the movie was only a couple years. The movie version of it was released in 1943. So that's really fast turnaround considering it's a book to movie, you know? Wow. And the film is a big stepping stone in the Western genre, like we talked about. It made the genre serious and nuanced and it wasn't like the more simple westerns that they call cowboys and horses films which is just a lot of rebel rousing and running around and fighting and this was a, a lot more of a film film uh not that i like that use of that but you know what i mean so it was directed by william a wellman i guess he comes from a family of well people <laughs> and it stars Henry Fonda and Dana Andrews, along with a number of other well-known actors for the time, and I think character actors of the time. This story type, according to Gruber's list, is, I think, kind of ironically the Avenger tale about righting a wrong on behalf of a person other than the hero. And by ironically, I mean, like, as in ironically, not ironically you know what i mean yeah um <laughs> great so the twist to this film is obviously that the quote justice exacted by the mob is another injustice there they hung three men innocent men uh, because they thought he did something wrong it's kind of a russian doll of justice yeah uh, from bad to worse it's a subversion yeah. of the pattern. But you're right. It fits yeah. because that's the premise. They're trying to right a wrong. But in doing so, they wrong it more. <laughs> they, they wrong the wrong. <laughs> and it's like we said, I mean, it's pretty gut-wrenching. The film, I think, really does an excellent job of making you question if these guys are guilty or not for a while. And even knowing how the film ends in my opinion, doesn't take away from the journey because I've seen this movie before and it still hits me hard at the end. It's 
really well put together and well acted and it really hits all those points really well. So I think part of what the main theme is also is the discourse between law and civil systems versus lawlessness and the wildness of the West. The town is established as a place that has like become stale. They don't have women. They say it's boring. And it's like after such a violent and wild time period, the film really plays into the theme of reverting back to a different time. And it's not even a long time before. That's the thing. It's like an immediate back in time. And I think it kind of is like akin to when we say things like how we talk about like we go into our reptile brains. I think the West or this film in particular showcases a time when we were a lot closer to our reptile brains because of all the violence. It's not like I'm blaming them. It's the Civil War and then the Wild West and it's just a lot of violence. And there is a split in the society of the town. Obviously, the mob rule outweighs the naysayers who attempt to slow them down. But even some of the men in the mob have periods of doubt where they're, I mean, the man that kind of got everybody going about this because it was his friend at times is like, huh, maybe this isn't a good idea. You know, maybe we shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. But the energy and the, like the heightened sense of camaraderie that happens in a mob like this really makes them set aside their doubts. I mean, they become a single mind in a lot of ways. It's very psychologically horrifying and interesting. And I think for me, that's what really stood out is the mania of the mob, like this energy. You see it in some of the middle parts of the film where there's like they're partying and there's like this woman just constantly laughing and like it's very heightened and You have this really strong juxtaposition between these men who are facing death and these people who are on like having like they're like on drugs, like they're having a high of of some kind. And I think those are the main themes that stuck out to me. What do you think? I agree. I work (laughs) on mob mentality first and foremost. Cool. It's easy to see that that. There is a mania going on, but it, it's interesting because, like you said, that this being a film film, it's more of a conversation and a character study. Totally. It could even be a stage play because it's that narrowed in on your cast and what each character does and say. And it's a continuous conversation. Like, even by the end, you're asking questions like, well, what could have been done or what was wrong? Or there are questions about morality and justice and why were the reptile brains so easy to come for it seemed too quick like all of these restless men who are trigger happy and i mean the beginning scene with like a bar fight it's like well obviously they have this energy they don't know where to put it Mm -hmm. but killing people is not a good place to put it (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i would like to talk about maybe some of the naysayers and their character development Because I thought this was interesting. The naysayers, like you call them, are the shop owner. And he's a bit older, but he makes sure to go with them to see if he can't change the outcome. Which he does try, and he does a good job of it. There's this maybe ex-preacher guy, religious guy. He's a little awkward, and he does a lot of singing. But it brings the atmosphere of religion. But it's not like in-your-face religion. It's more like, (laughs) this isn't right on so many levels. And, you know, you're all going to hell. Not that he says that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not in your face about it, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's more about like good and evil when you hear him singing. You know, at least for me, it was. It was like, oh, this is more than just justice in the West. This is like in your depth mm-hmm. damage what you're doing here. Because it's a film film, they really bring the soul into that. Whereas other cowboy horse movies might just be there's not really a thought to it maybe you're even with the group this really does turn it and make you sort of examine and reflect on the self exactly and you hadn't mentioned the son right of the major yet he was i think he's supposed to be like an effeminate man because he doesn't want to shoot anybody and he's not brave like his dad even though his dad that's not what his dad is he's not brave he hardly fought in the army when he was a major I don't remember the words you used at the beginning here, but he's power hungry and corrupt. And uh, uh, I can't remember the word, but the word was perfect, meaning not a legit soldier. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that he, he committed suicide because it it's all in his head. Whatever he was thinking, his ideals, they're just in his head. They're not actuality. Yeah. And what he's doing to his son is cruel because at one point he asks his son to create the execution to like what to to move yeah. the horses from the hanged men and he doesn't do it his son doesn't do it and there's a line i think his son says afterwards he says your face it was a face of a depraved murderous beast there are only two things that have ever meant anything to you power and cruelty you can't feel pity you can't even feel guilt in your heart you knew those men were innocent yet you were cold crazy to see them hanged to make me watch it I could have stopped you with a gun just as any other animal can be stopped from killing, but I couldn't do it because I'm a coward. And when he says I'm a coward, at that point, we're understanding that that's not what he is, actually. He was the good guy the whole time. Yeah, that's right before the major takes his own life. I was surprised by it, to be honest, because people like that, like the major, I don't expect to have a lot of self-reflection. Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't expect that either. Yeah. But I felt better once that happened. I was like, good. <laughs> I mean, you feel bad Lizard that that brain. was the outcome. Like, you would think, like, yeah. maybe his reflection would mean that he would change. But I don't know. Yeah, there's also some justice to that. I don't know. Yeah. And then the last two are the the travelers, the main two characters, Henry Ford's character. And then I can't remember the other guy's name. His friend who goes with him, right? Because it is main- Henry, Henry Ford. Allah. Henry Fonda's character. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Henry Ford. Oh, he's the Ford guy. He's the car guy. Okay. Inventing cars since 1840. <laughs> Do you know that Henry Ford was in this picture? <laughs> Henry Fonda's character. Yes. The whole time he's the one who's saying those really memorable quotes because he's questioning whether they should be there as travelers because they're not well known by these men and they could easily turn on these two travelers yeah. and say like, well, you're not helping either and you're naysaying and you could have been the ones that shot him, you know. Yeah, exactly. They're worried about that. But there's something about Henry Fonda's performance. Yeah. Ugh, you can tell he's the most genuine. I don't know if that's his mm. acting or the character, but his decision mm. in the end to actually go to the wife to deliver yeah. the letter, I think was one of the most memorable moments for me what did you think yeah definitely because he holds everything in for the most i mean he makes speeches but he also holds everything in and you see him holding everything in and his friend is like i don't know if we should do that or we shouldn't do that but he like goes along with him and it's really interesting to watch him carry these things and actually since we're talking about henry fonda's character can i read this line 
yeah. from the letter, from the, Please. the hanged man's letter. Get ready to cry. It's not that long. <laughs> okay. But like Jen was saying, Henry Fonda's character is reading the letter to all of the men of the mob in the bar later on. And this is what the letter says, or partly what it says. Man just naturally can't take the law into his own hands and hang people without hurting everybody in the world. Because then he's just not breaking one law, but all laws. Laws a lot more than words you put in a book. Our judges or lawyers or sheriffs you hire to carry it out. It's everything people ever have found out about justice and what's right and wrong. It's the very conscience of humanity. Beautiful. That letter is filled with beautiful language, by the way, and that's just a little bit of it. Agreed. And I like that you brought up the reptilian brain. There's something about law and chaos or order and chaos. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you step over chaos again, it's so easy to just lose yourself to it. Yeah. Really quickly. And there were times when watching it, I thought of Inherit the Wind kept coming up for me. Oh, interesting. I don't know if it's like the discourse between like two men or I mean, obviously, that's like in everything, but um, the way that they do it and the level at which it's done is very deep. And you have this sense of the religious singing in Inherit the Wind kind of takes on a bit of a mob feel to it at times. And the preacher has to calm them down at one point because they're getting they're reaching that level of Oxbow incident and he's like trying to bring it back down. So I, I just, I felt like there was a lot of crossover, or I kept thinking of that movie while I was watching the Oxbow Incident. That's amazing that that movie is also a conversation movie, right? Because mm. in the end, you're not sure what the right answer is. It's an yeah. ongoing conversation, and yeah. they just use these characters to make the conversation. Yes. In a very successful way in a way that you don't feel like you're having a conversation because if somebody pitches me a film saying it's a conversation movie i'd be like oh god no absolutely not but <laughs> they do it in a way where it's like you you really do get invested in this conversation that's happening without it being in my opinion without it being too over the top like it's not as heavy-handed as it could be Exactly. I mean, there's preachy moments, maybe, mm -hmm. but nothing feels like propaganda. I, I yeah. think it's because both sides are listened to. There's points on both mm. sides that seem legit. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. You made that promise when we went. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. I can't believe in until I shoot Frank Miller dead. Why don't you tell us about our next movie in the early era? So 1952, historically we're entering that era of the Cold War. People are being blacklisted. It's an unusual time for the government and for its citizens. And that's what this movie is. It's high noon. And before I move on to the director, I need to say the plot. Good, because we need to know what this movie is about. For me, it was sort of hard to watch. But I think after mm. you hear the plot, you'll understand why. So Marshall Kane of a small New Mexico town is near retirement and preparing to leave with his new Quaker wife when he is given news that Frank Miller, a man he put in prison, was recently released by the courts. And knowing Frank will seek revenge on him and maybe on the town, Kane seeks help from his townspeople. But he is denied by everyone and left to face Frank and his posse alone. 
In the course of the movie, the audience discovers that Cain put in a great deal of work in the past into safeguarding his people. So the reluctance of each town person is meant to leave us questioning their character, their courage, and their loyalty. Hmm. And some of those, and, and this is described in the plot, but some of those characters, which really surprised me, was a previous town marshal. Hmm. And Cain called him his mentor. Like it, it was his predecessor. And one of his lines is, If you're honest, you're poor your whole life. And in the end, you wind up dying all alone on some dirty street. For what? For nothing. For a tin star. Very depressing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to hear that from your mentor, like he's basically given up and won't help him, that must have been yeah. devastating. That's just yeah. one of the characters. Kane has an old Mexican girlfriend who also encourages him to leave instead mm-hmm. of like confront him. And then his new wife, I know she's a pacifist. Being a Quaker, you're usually a pacifist. She just, like, refuses to help him. She says, no, I'm going. Yeah. Good luck is basically her words. I mean, there's more words there, but. (laughs) She says, come with me. Oh, right. Because I'm leaving or don't, you know. Right. And his explanation is we can't do that because they would just find us, right? You can't run from it. He'll always be there. He's right. You got to kind of face it. You can you have to face your bullies at some point. Yeah. And then the iconic scene at the end, which a lot of filmographers talk about, which is Kane in the town square all alone mm. at high noon because the idea is the bad guy is going to arrive in the town at high noon on the train. And Kane's idea was to have his backup join him in the town at that time at high noon and there's this big build up mm-hmm. the sounds and the shots everything is just a build up to this moment where he is alone <laughs> poor guy supposedly the hero who has earned the backup is all alone but luckily he's such a good marshal and such a good gunman he still wins like it's him against yeah. these three crazy dudes and he still wins And in the end, there's this ambiguous and rightly frustrating scene where the town wanders out and (laughs) gives him a carriage for him and his wife. And he just throws down his sheriff's star and leaves. It's still the iconic riding into the sunset, but it means Mm. something completely different because you're like disgusted by this town. Happy that he's okay, that the main guy is okay, but just disgusted. Incredibly. Yeah. Which I think is the point. And we'll talk about why this Mm. is more of an allegory than anything else. Mm. But before that, I must say the director, Fred Zinnerman? Zinman? Zinman? How come I can never Mm. say names? (laughs) I'd go with Zinman, but I don't know. Zinman. The actors are Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. Uh Uh-huh. This one was based uh, on a short story. The story itself was called The Tin Star, and it was written in 1947. And the author was John Cunning- Cunningham. Ah, that one I got. Mm-hmm. John Cunningham. Because <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. This is very rich as well. So the material, I would understand it being literature before it was a movie. And again, pretty fast turnover. 47, he wrote it? Yeah. yeah. And it was made in 57? I mean, that's pretty fast. And maybe that's to say the audience was really hungry for these in-depth value projections american value Mm. projections i would call these Mm. movies high budget value Mm. yeah type of western i'm gonna call it a marshall story because i mean it is you're following the marshall the entire time and he is the protagonist but like the oxbow incident it sort of subverts the pattern i think those are all the details 
But yeah, so my, my point of, of this being that High Noon is supposed to be frustrating to watch. And the allegory supposedly is about being blacklisted. I think it was, I don't know Mm. if it was the director or the writer who had been blacklisted. It probably felt appropriate to just adapt the short story. It is about, you know, someone who's deserving, but left alone in this time of need. So what does that mean? It means Mm. you're pessimistic about your government, Mm. that despite being a good citizen, people will not, even your friends won't support you. That's how alone you're left in mm. political threats there's even a line in the movie and i think it's the the lawyer or the justice or marshall goes through all the appropriate channels he's gathering the lawmakers the previous marshall his friends i guess some of the churchgoers get involved you know everybody's in mm. this conversation of there's a bad guy coming to town help me and it's not like kane is pushing any of that mm. he's a very stoic guy right he's not making these grandiose if anything his dialogue is very short by the way in most of the movie am i right yeah definitely it's the other characters who have the monologues yes he doesn't feel like he can ask anyone to risk their lives but at the same time it's like damn like you did all of this stuff for this town you made this town safe for everyone and all of these people are now like nah we're good just leave Yes. Yeah. It's not like they're not concerned about him. Everybody tells them to leave. Yeah. And but it's not like he can drive his point any clearer. Running won't work. I know this because I'm a marshal and that's how I brought law into this town. And they're not even wanting to understand the position. And I think that's true of being blacklisted. Hmm. Nobody wants to hear your side of the story. It's more like there's great threat if we agree to this and we're not in the position to be threatened with you. You know what I mean? Hmm. Good point. Yeah, definitely. Other people really hated this movie, including John Wayne himself. He said it was like the most un-American thing he had ever seen, which is correct. Yes. I mean, that is correct. (laughs) That's the point. It's not the traditional Marshall story. The catharsis of having a town back you up is not the point. It's the opposite, which is you're a deserving hero. You've done everything correctly. You've gotten your reward already. The wife, if that's what she is, you know. She is like 20 Um, years younger than him. That was a little awkward. (laughs) Yeah. There's some redemption on the wife's part. If we can do a spoiler here. Yeah. In the scene where Gary Cooper's character confronts the bad guys, there's a point where the wife is able to take a gun and shoot one of the bad guys. And she does. Or there's a moment where she's she's over the Quakerness. (laughs) She's over pacifism. I mean, she was the only person, really, to help him. And she was very opinionated in the beginning, making the ultimatum very clear very early. It was like, either leave with me or we're done. You know, I'm not going to stick around for this. And I thought that was really a lot for the beginning, but it makes sense in the end because it's like, okay, who's actually going to stand up for this guy? Yeah. And it's her, which I think is a good testament to women in the West. I agree. And there's even a in the church scene, which is the biggest discussion of all the scenes of characters saying why or why they shouldn't help Gary Cooper's character. I think it was the woman who said, you guys are all cowards. I can't believe I'm hearing this. Don't you remember there was a time when women couldn't even live here? And it's thanks to this marshal that we have order. Her argument goes nowhere. That is a heart-wrenching scene because it starts off so good. You're like, yeah, everybody's on board and they're like, this is wrong. They have to stand. And it's just like very slowly or very quickly. It turns and he ends up leaving by himself. And it's like, damn, 
Damn. Right? Oh, you're right. That scene is a, is a, would be an interesting study on its own. Yeah. So one thing that stood out to me in the movie is that it reminded me of an episode of The Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. There's something about him going from group to group and eventually, like, literally person to person to get help and having everyone turn their backs on him that feels really surreal and uncanny. Like, it doesn't feel like we're in the normal world anymore. And I think that goes towards the events of the, what did you call it? Blacklisting. When we did the Twilight Zone episodes, we didn't go into this episode, but there is one where this man wakes up in a town and he finds food cooking on the stove and he finds a movie theater playing a movie and a car running, but there's no people. And he slowly begins to like lose his mind because he's like, I know there's people, but where are they? And and that one was a lot more about isolation, but it also dealt with this concept of things that you find familiar that you know really well can change so instantly and strangely that you find your world like flipped upside down and things don't make sense anymore. And I feel like the end of this film was really excellent. Like while the Twilight Zone episode ended with this dude like losing his mind, this one ends with acceptance. He accepts the town's choice, no matter what he's done for all of them. He doesn't hold a grudge or hate them. It's not like he's trying to hit them at the end. He knows where he stands. He knows everyone except his new wife has abandoned him. And the way that they shoot it is almost frustrating because he just drops his badge and they leave and it's over. I wanted to feel the satisfaction of like seeing these people's faces and seeing what they've done and how they messed up, but it doesn't. It's done. You know, he's he just fully accepts that it's over and they leave. And it's like, okay, <laughs> they're going to go start their lives together. It's interesting because his character fits the marshal, the courage, the individualism. That's a big theme we're going to be talking about soon. Mm. Being able to stand alone, being self-sufficient and deserving supposedly the backup of a community, the wife, the happiness. Like he deserves all of it. But the fact that he doesn't get it and still ends with um some self-sufficiency right like he nothing is lost on him he did what he wanted to do and he did it without help yeah so it's not like he is left any lesser it's the town that is now lesser and i think that's the point of the political scheme here even if you're blacklisted you can still keep your identity because it's not you it's them and you got to remember that yeah and how is that not a Twilight Zone concept? I mean, really, that's <laughs> yeah. like Twilight Zone all over the place. It is. So we could obviously compare the endings of these two films, too. For the early era, these are our two films. They have obviously different moods. I think one is really about acute and ongoing shame. And I think one is about closure and acceptance in some interpretations what do you think oh i agree and i would even say one being optimistic and the other being pessimistic totally (laughs) and they stick out again i feel like the endings of westerns really deserve their own place because the endings of these films are so different except for i think one they're all very unique and make some sort of big statement heck yes The bravest of them all. 
Okay. Well, shall we move on to the mid-era of the Western genre? (laughs) I'm calling, this may be incorrect, I'm calling the mid-era around the 60s, I would say through like 80s maybe. Because in the 60s in America, the genre starts to die off. And it also makes sense historically because the big wars are over, the Cold War is sort of dying down now. And there's other templates out there. There's other genres out there in America that are now capturing the audience. And a lot of that's the bigness of cinema. It's just getting bigger. The wow factor is now a thing. Mm. So the Western feels like it, it can't accommodate all of that. There's still some being made, but I think they understand for it to go on, something big has to be introduced. Mm. And interestingly, what happens is Europe takes the Western and Mm. brings something very new. Uh, The lecturer I was talking about earlier, he calls it the European cynicism that's projected onto the genre Mm. and specifically the Italians. Mm. And I I should have looked into the history of what was happening in Europe in the 60s. But whatever it was, I think it warranted some cynicism. I'm I'm sure there's nothing major going on (laughs) in all of the 60s. I think they were fine. Well, whatever it was, the Italians were like super (laughs) pessimistic and they wanted Mm. to produce some really dark stuff. So they did. Mm. I think the biggest being Sergio Leone's, they call it the Dollars Trilogy, Mm. but that's where we get the big intro to Clint Eastwood Mm. and his depiction of the loner hero who is much darker and grittier. And I don't even know if some of his actions, and he carries this over to other films that he even directs. Like his actions are I'm mean, kind of irredeemable. Would you agree? I don't I haven't mm. watched that many Clint Eastwood westerns to be honest, but the ones I have, they are very different than the John Wayne lone hero. Yeah. It's not like you completely hate the hero by the end, but it's not good either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to be yeah. him, but you understand maybe why he's doing those things that he's doing. It's that type of lone hero. Yeah. That comes out of Europe. And we call them spaghetti westerns for that reason, right? That's not offensive at all. Americans are so (laughs) silly. (laughs) And it does introduce Clint Eastwood as the next major western star. Mr. Eastwood. Mr. Eastwood. Sorry. (laughs) That's from Back to the Future (laughs) 3. And then so uh, my, my point being that once the influence of Europe is caught on in America... They realize that if they want to bring the Western genre back, they're going to have to be changing it up a little bit. They'll have to be cynics as well and maybe accept the fact that they won't be appealing to the American audience all the time now, especially in Hollywood, right? It's gutsy to be like, I know we don't all believe this, but we're going to say it anyway. You can't be yellow-livered. What is it? Yellow-bellied. Yellow. (laughs) Yellow Yellow-bellied. Thank you. (laughs) Your liver can be any color you want. Lily livered, right? Lily liver. Oh, lily livered, yellow belly. Lily-livered. Yeah. Yellow Cinema. belly. Yeah. yeah. That's it. <laughs> so, one of the movies that America makes then after that cynicism is introduced is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Woo. That is a John Ford movie. And he is an mm-hmm. excellent director when it comes to being subtle, very little dialogue. I always like John Ford's portrayals of the lone hero because they're very pragmatic Mm. they're grounded their thoughts are on immediate action and problem solving which Mm. makes them mysterious and i don't know in my opinion more attractive i don't Mm. know (laughs) not Mm. everybody's attracted to that but you know when you think of like the lone gunman it's like ooh. 
so John Ford does use that character in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and it is cast with John Wayne. But on the opposite end of that, co-starring Jimmy Stewart. And his character is interesting because Jimmy Stewart's character is going to represent the law, mm. the order that's now being introduced into the Western genre. I'll explain why after I tell you the plot of this magnificent film. Shot in 1962. I don't know if I said that. The premise. It's an ambitious new lawyer. His name is Rance Stuttered. Is attacked on the road to a Western town. And upon learning his attacker is outlaw Liberty Valance. He tries to use the law to bring Valance to justice, but due to the town's lack of martial authority, Rance is unsuccessful and instead begins working for Vera, a restaurant attendant who, along with a skilled gunman named Tom, helped Rance when he first arrived in the town. So right away you get this trio, and we'll understand it's later a love triangle, because you have Tom, you have Rance, and then Vera, the woman. The woman. The woman. <laughs> Anyway, so then Rance begins teaching because he discovers that Vera and a lot of the townspeople are illiterate, but they're very thirsty for education. This whole town actually is depicted really interestingly because they're willing to change most of the time. Doesn't it feel like that? Yeah, definitely. And then you get characters like Tom, who's a rancher, who's more of the older ideals, right? Like he's the one who tamed the West. So now he's hard, but kind hearted. And he you'll see that his actions sometimes bump up against what Rance is trying to do for the town, which is bring in a new law and order based on diplomatic processes rather than violent process. Mm. So anyway, Rance is so influential, in fact, that he is nominated as a delegate during a statehood convention that the town is holding. But Rance, interestingly enough, he tries to nominate Tom because he knows that usually violence and not the law that will create order, or at least it seems like to him because he's been attacked a few times. That's <laughs> traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's Rance that has more votes and it's the people who want him rather than Tom to be a delegate for statehood. And then meanwhile, Liberty Valance is hired by, I think he's hired later, they tell us, by a cattleman, by like one of those tycoons that we talked about, because they don't want this city to be part of the statehood. It means law would come into town. And there's a lot of people who would be against that. And Valance, he threatens Rance again. He says, well, if you don't leave, you know, we'll, we'll attack you. We'll probably kill you. So Tom offers to help Rance learn how to shoot. It's this great scene where, you know, and Rance is terrible at shooting. We understand like he he's not a violent person and he can't shoot anything. And it's during this weird scene that Tom implies that he wants to marry Vera, that it's going to happen. You know, I have this house and it's ready for her. And Rance, in my opinion, Rance doesn't show that he's in love with Vera, really. I think he appreciates her, but I don't I don't see like any desperate love quite yet. Mm -mm. But in any case, you know, Tom and Rance aren't getting along. And by the end of that scene, Rance leaves because he's super frustrated with Tom. But anyway, Liberty Valance, he gets to the point where he nearly kills one of the townspeople. And I think it's the reporter. And Rance just gets so frustrated that he takes up a shotgun and he confronts Liberty Valance. And in this weird shootout, we're to understand that it was Rance who shot at the last minute and killed Liberty Valance. And the town is... They just accept him as being like this hero. You killed mm -hmm. the last villain of our town and now we can move forward. And and they sort of put him up on this pedestal. I think he becomes nominated for Congress. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of things happening really quickly. But Rance the whole time is feeling guilt ridden by it because he had to use violence and he doesn't do that. And I think it's it, it happens that he goes off into this office and he's about to like throw in the towel and say, I don't want to be a congressman with this identity anymore. Tom comes in and he says, well, you can be because it wasn't you who shot Liberty Valance. I shot Liberty Valance. I know. I know. It's this kind of like heartbreaking so... scene. It is. Because Tom makes it clear you can't 
tell anybody that. Like, they need you. This is a total Batman moment. You're the hero the town needs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Tom is the Dark Knight. He is saying this needs to happen this way because the town deserves you and not me. I will do what's necessary because I am the vigilante. I am the good bad guy. Mm -hmm. And you will take the credit. Just do it. And um, the the framing device of the movie is that Rance and his wife Vera, because they marry, Mm-hmm. I think they're up for I think a presidential election mm-hmm. now. Gosh, like he's he's already gone up the totem pole to the fact that he wants to be president. And this reporter, this is years later, and they've arrived for Tom's funeral. And he's you know he lived alone his whole life, and other than a few friends around him, it's it's kind of a sad moment where Rance and Vera arrive for his funeral. And I think there's this moment where Rance is like, I need to tell the truth now. It's been years. I know I'm up for election, but we need to get this right. And he tells the reporter, you know, it was Tom who shot him. I did not. Mm -hmm. And in this very, again, moving moment, ambiguous moment, the reporter, and it's a famous line, he says, This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And he does not write the truth. Yeah. And I think that's also kind of a dark night moment where it's like, no, the people need the legend. Yeah. And that's what we're going to give them. And these are reporters. I know. I know. <laughs> Very well summated. I summated it. <laughs> Director John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, also based on a, I don't know if it's a novel or a short story, by Dorothy Johnson. And we would call this the Avenger. Well, I would call this, there's a few it could fit under. One could be the Avenger tale Mm. because it was Jimmy Stewart's character that was attacked in the first place. And the town wants to get revenge from Liberty Valance the whole time. Mm. But it's also a little bit maybe of the ranch story because it was a cattle rancher who hired Liberty Valance to keep the town out of statehood. I mean, bringing the law to a town too is a big deal. That means you will have to abide by new laws would you agree does it fit into any other pattern i wasn't really sure about this one i think one of the themes that it also hits on later hits on that it hits upon is the construction it doesn't happen while they're there it happens while we're away Ah. but at the end vera talks to jimmy stewart and is like there's a famous line with it i don't have it i don't think but something about how he really changed the town look at it it was once a wilderness now it's a garden aren't you proud i think that's probably one of the big themes that made the movie appropriate for the 60s because we think about Mm. political i mean political corruption mostly but in this case it's almost Mm. like corruption for a good for the better for the better yeah because jimmy stewart's character was worthy We understand because he was trying to educate this town that needed it and wanted it. And he earns, I keep saying this, he earns the girl. That's one of the big tropes, by the way, is the hero Mm. getting the girl in the end, obviously. The object. But it's done tastefully (laughs) in this one because she chooses Jimmy Stewart's character. She She chooses Rance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not Rance that's after her. You know what I mean? Which... Again, I I really appreciate because he doesn't really pay a lot of attention to that. He's got like other things going on in his head. Yeah. And I like that because there's this understanding, I think, that happens between the three people eventually. And I think Tom is such an interesting character because he really could just 
do whatever he wants, really, because he knows that Jimmy Stewart's not going to fight him. But he does what he... He pulls out from the relationship or wanting a relationship with Vera because she doesn't want it. Right. And I think that's a nice message. I'm very proud of John Wayne in this role. Mm. Because like I said, he plays that loner hero, somewhat of a pragmatic man very well here because you can tell his values, despite him being part of the grit of the Old West, are still genuine and loving. Yeah. Because to give up your love is a big deal too, right? It's not just like you you understand this hero is needed for the town, but this hero is needed for her. Yeah. It's interesting because this was the first movie to bring Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne together. And, you know, both were already iconic. I mean, Jimmy Stewart's character was more prominent. Like he had the more Mm. screen time. But still, there was something about their dynamic that was interesting to watch. Am I wrong? No. I was really surprised how well those two work together. And seeing Jimmy Stewart in a, a Western feels a little weird at first. But it really is sort of, it's atypical for the Western to have these two dynamics be leading together for the most part. But it was, I, it's my favorite one on the list. Ooh, cool. I think that it's a mutual tragedy, <laughs> mm. which it's like a, a good tragedy, which is just awful. But there's this angst around Jimmy Stewart's character because no matter what he tries to do, he is stuck with this lie. Yeah. Like he is going to die with this lie. Even when they tell people like reporters, they keep the lie going. And I think that's kind of its own tragedy or its own hell in some ways. Because he's this man who wants to be good and he wants to do things right. And this all has happened based on a lie. And of course, Tom, I think, is a tragic character, too, because he's a simple, quote, simple man. He doesn't need a lot. He's building a room, basically, for him and Vera in his little home. And that's what he's working on a lot of the time. It's nice, you know, it's it's a nice sentiment that he just wants like a simple life and he wants to give her a home, you know. It's a good tragedy because he lets her go. She was never his to begin with, and he accepts that. And it's really difficult for him. I mean, he burns down the room, but he doesn't take it out on the community. He doesn't take it out on Jimmy Stewart. He threatens him at that one scene. I was like, oh my God, this is going to go south really quickly. Um, (laughs) I hate tricks, Pilgrim. But that's what you're up against with Valance. He's almost as fast as I am. I don't like tricks myself, so that makes us even. Like, he threatens him big time, and it's like, okay, um, don't get gun shooting lessons from the person who likes the girl that likes you. Yes. Basic human truth. (laughs) But so I think there's a lot of semi-tragedies, and even with Vera, she's pretty happy in her position, and she could have easily had a pretty decent life with John Wayne's character. This was her town, and it's sort of framed in the way that this is her home because she wants to return home at the end. It poses questions of what could have been if the lie had come out or if Jimmy Stewart had just moved on and she had stayed. And so there's a lot of open wandering. That's a terrible way of putting that. No, uh, it's great. <laughs> in, in that story, too. So I, I don't know. There's a lot there 
a lot of dualities where you have to like live with certain things and that's bravery. All of them have bravery in that way. So it just, it's really powerful movie to me. I like that term duality because that feels appropriate for even the imagery that they're using. I think the metaphor is between the rose cactus and a regular rose. Isn't that what Jumi Stewart's character says? Yes. Tom brings her the cactus rose, which is beautiful in its own way because out in the West, in the wild, there's still beauty. And that's what Tom is. Mm -hmm. Whereas Jimmy's coming from the rose garden of the East where the intellectual Mm -hmm. man is probably more desired. But some of that is needed in the West now because the West has been tamed. It's been conquered. And Tom's character is kind of that dying age lone hero. And Jimmy Stewart's is now the new lone, not lone hero anymore, obviously, but he's going through the political means of becoming heroic. And he's the rose. He's the perfection. Or I mean, I know rose have thorns, but it's like the cactus rose is a lot more threatening <laughs> thorny. and thorny <laughs> yeah. than like a regular rose, right? And yeah. that's why Vera's character in the end is she's bitter about it because she does miss the cactus rose that Tom was kind of part of her home. Yeah. And it definitely shows that new cynicism mm. that John Ford embraces in this movie because before his work somewhat romanticized and patriotic. And this is the first time we get mm. like, you know, there's some good and bad and two of them could be heroes and but they do the wrong things for the right reason, you know, all that, yeah. Five stars. Five sheriff stars. Someday's little girl you wonder what life's about But others have known battles are won alone so you next the second film that we're going to talk about for the mid era is true grit from 1969 i'm going to just give you a little description on a mission to find her father's killer a 14 year old girl named maddie and the u.s marshal that she hires rooster are joined by a texas ranger to exact justice Maddie basically hires Rooster, who's John Wayne, and he's, what do they call him, hard-nosed, a drunkard, and a U.S. Marshal. All the things you want in your Marshal. <laughs> um, and she's asking around town, like, who's the person to go to? And everybody's like, Rooster. So she tracks him down and harps on him until he agrees to listen to her. And she wants him to track down this dude, Pepper. So then Maddie and Rooster meet LaBeouf, LaBeouf, the Texas Marshal, who's looking to bring Pepper in for a a reward, which is a very Old West storyline. And Rooster decides that's a better deal. And he decides to work with him instead. And Maddie's like, what the hell, bro? And it's kind of funny. I mean, it's pretty funny. They repeatedly try to ditch Maddie. And no matter what, she just keeps showing up again. (laughs) And the Texas marshal is like, let's just get rid of her. At some point, he said something. And it's like, and Rooster looks at him like, "What what are you talking about? And he's just like, I guess she's coming along, you know? And it's like, good. Thank you for not like killing this person. I don't know what he was talking about. So from that point on, the three of them work together more or less. And they're going down to hunt down Pepper and his gang. He's got a couple cronies with him. And this film is known for having a high death count, which I think is something 
strange to be known for, but for Westerns, it's supposed to have a pretty high death count. But despite that, I feel like it has one of the happier endings from the list of movies that we have. It's not ecstatic happy. It's not happy happy. But like giving it the happier ending that it has, I think really gives it an extra layer to the film. It would have been really easy to just cut out the ending that they had and make it dark or just make it end. But again, with the ending, we have something that adds another point to it. And I think also that if they had killed Maddie or Rooster, it really would have darkened it to the point of it not being this hopeful sort of story. The Texas man dies, but nobody cares. I'm just kidding. I guess people care. I don't know. <laughs> I thought that was kind of sad because he, he died a hero. He did. And his last actions were heroic. It's true. It's true. I shouldn't be so harsh on him. Sorry. So True Grit came out in 1969, as I mentioned. It was directed by Henry Hathaway, written by Marguerite Roberts, and based on the book True Grit by Charles Portis. It stars John Wayne as Rooster, Glenn Campbell as LaBeouf, and Kim Darby as Maddie Ross. We're going to get more into this. I have to take a sidebar. I had to look up Marguerite Roberts because it's a female screenwriter. And what I found was really interesting, so I have to share it. So Roberts was a screenwriter, and she was one of the highest paid in the 1930s. And I think going back to our history, she and her husband actually refused to testify in 1951 before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And she was blacklisted for nine years and could not work in Hollywood. So after that time period, in 1962, she was able to get hired again by Columbia Pictures. And seven years later, she wrote the script for Drew Grit. And I think at some point we should take a look at some of her films because a female screenwriter being successful in the 30s is something we should look at. But it, it kind of goes back to that connection, you know, that we have between being blacklisted, the Old West and film, and how they all kind of come together in these different kinds of ways. So back to your normal paid programming. <laughs> <laughs> This is an Avenger tale, pretty straight up. Maddie's desire to have Pepper eliminated is almost cold in some ways. She's very focused and determined to see him dead. She doesn't, I mean, she just wants him gone. And even like with the numerous deaths that are going on in the pursuit to get Pepper, her satisfaction with his death is like definite. Like she's, she's happy. I mean, she's satisfied that this has been done despite all of this violence. And... At the end, she makes Rooster part of her family in a sweet and sort of morbid gesture. Like she insists that he be buried beside her in her family plot. And it genuinely like touches Rooster. I mean, I think even from the start, he had a respect for her, which I thought was nice because she's no nonsense and he respected that. But in the end, it's a different kind of mutual respect. And I feel like they both have seen each other through some dark times and come out of it and are now like bonded because of it. I really liked that connection between, we'll see this again in another film we talk about, of this kind of hardened Western man and a young girl and, and how they team up, I think is really interesting. What, what did you think about that? I would call it a relationship story for sure. And you're right, another of our selections are going to fit this type because the story could be about anything, but we're focusing on the older man and the younger girl which is very much familial, but it's how it happens that's interesting because you do have the man that's considered gritty 
a girl who is extremely hardened because even during the violence, you said this, she's not, I mean, she's faced a little bit in the original where some pretty gritty stuff are happening and she takes it. She's even happy to kill the man who killed her father. I don't think that was her original intent. I think she wanted to see him hanged specifically for the death of her father. But as a spoiler, you know, she, I think she is the one to kill him in the end. So it's impressive. It's impressive to take these two very specific characters and see what happens when you bring them together. One is without a father. One is without a child. What makes them come together? And it is. It's very heartfelt. Because yeah. uh, John Wayne, again, is very good at that. You know, yeah. you can't tell what's happening behind my hard ex- exterior. But at some point, he does reveal to Maddie that his wife left him and took with her their child. Mm-hmm. Which apparently was a son that wasn't all that gritty. <laughs> That's what he says, right? Like, he says his son was, like, a wimp or something. Yeah. Which is interesting, because Maddie is not, but she's also a girl. Right. Hmm. Yes. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. And then Maddie has lost her father, and there's this man who's willing, despite her um, insistence, because LaBeouf is completely like, oh, you're so annoying, girl. Go away, because she's so insistent. Whereas, Mm -hmm. like you said, John Wayne's character is respectful of that. And that's even an appeal to him. What was my point about that? (laughs) <laughs> he likes her so much that he needs to save her in the end yeah there's no question in his mind that it's all it's about her now we're going to save her life and nothing else matters very true one of the things that stuck out to me was the role of women in the western genre in films before this we see women within the context of wives either a woman is without a husband or she's with a husband Like, that's kind of it. And in this film, we see a different kind of viewpoint. I don't know who in the right mind would have thought that was a good idea to give, like, a female character something other than being a wife. But here we are. That's dumb. (laughs) And she's young. Like, she's 14. It's very young. And we don't expect her to act the way that she acts, typically. Like you said, she isn't scared of every little thing. She's not screaming and running around. But... It's also not unrealistic. Like when it's a good time to scream and run around, she does. It's like, okay, good. Like you have some idea of like life and death here. And she very obviously has a phobia of snakes and that becomes a big part of it. And I really like that while she's really tough, she's still human and feels things really deeply. And Rooster is very similar. They both are characters who are unique I think, in their setting and have depth. I didn't feel that kind of depth from the Texan, for instance, who's the only other character that we really see a lot of. That really comes into play with these two. And I I like that idea. Uh, But what, what do you think of this interpretation of like a young girl in like the West, the Wild West? Oh, I agree. It's super unique. And I think that's what makes True Grit one of the more memorable Westerns is because you don't see this typical archetype, but it works because it's the most unexpected. Like who would think that a female child could survive the grit of the West? Yeah. And if anything, she's born into it. Like even from the beginning, you see that she's a businesswoman for her father. Yes. She knows numbers and she takes care of things. And and I think in the original book, that was very much true because she's the narrator of the story. Ah. Maybe also I had such low expectations. I didn't expect anything from it that it it really does sort of stand out from non-genre films she's unique in a film beyond just the western 
we don't get to see yeah. this kind of character type in this time period, let alone this time period that we're in now, as much. I will definitely have to watch the remake now that we know I've seen this one and I know how I feel about this one. I'll try to go in with an open mind and see how they do it. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison. But mm. overall, I, the original stands up more for me. I mm. think it's because of John Wayne. I really do. It's- interesting. Who plays Rooster? Oh, when were you going to ask me that? <laughs> <What's> his name? <laughs> Jeff Bridges. Oh, okay. It's Jeff Bridges. I can see that. There's something about his portrayal of it, realistically more of an annoying old man mm. than what John Wayne did. John Wayne plays the tragic hero where, like, yeah. he, you know, he was a good father and could be a good father. Yeah. And Jeff Bridges is okay, but it's like, mm. there's this conversation that he has with Maddie in the newer version that's just annoying he's just talking at her i'm like oh we know that older men do that john wayne's character did not do that he right. was mysterious and yeah. then when you realized he cared about her you knew it was for real yeah Whereas jeff bridges is, was like annoying uh i don't hmm. know interesting i mean yeah that's that's what i liked about john wayne's portrayal i mean that's what to me made him a good actor is that you see him doing all these things without him acting it he's so subtle and i did not expect subtlety from john wayne right (laughs) i did not right which makes me believe that what he feels inside is all the more powerful Mm. yeah he won't say it but he like you said that graveyard scene in the end Mm -hmm. is extremely moving because he wasn't he wasn't expecting that yeah and it's amazing to see his reaction (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay thanks (laughs) well is there anything else you want to talk about for true grit the values of individualism in america and that progression of it because i think a lot of commentators are correct which is to say that the lone hero is one of the biggest portrayals of individualism as far as genres go there's something about being self-sufficient mysterious but holding on to basic morals in the face of the wilderness or chaos or lawlessness and I would agree with that. Anyway, the, the book that I was reading it from is called The Psychology of the Western. It's an interesting collection of essays. In the introduction, it reads the following. Western heroes are, with rare exception, lone figures. Though they are figures upon whom others depend, they remain estranged from society. They reflect values of a self-sufficient pragmatist. But in this feature is the exploration of possible relationships, right? I mean, this is one of the prime examples because you're always wondering, will they participate in the community will they have a family will they say yes to the romance and it's hard to read them so you never know what the outcome of their experience is will they melt i guess if we're talking about archetypes we talk about the lone hero being melted sometimes they do sometimes they don't interesting that's it (laughs) okay (laughs) this is a good point Perhaps now we shall move on to the late era. Do you want to give us a bit of noteworthy late era Western film genre history? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good answer. The highest grossing film becomes Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles in 1974. And I have a theory, and this actually is probably not even my theory, which is to say that the Western is now old enough that it can be made fun of. Mm. We know the tropes. We know the patterns. We are pros at this. Mm -hmm. So now we can joke about it. Yes. 
And nobody does that better than Mel Brooks's stuff, right? True. I just have the song stuck in my head now. <laughs> he wore a blazing saddle. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Hilarious movie. So good. Uh, it says something that the audience was ready for that if it becomes the highest grossing. Yeah. I think later that's outdone by Dances with Wolves, but mm. it's just, it's great to see that we were ready for the genre to be made fun of. Yes. Oh, another big thing that came out, Lonesome Dove. It was first this epic novel, which I hmm. tried to listen to. I got I got pretty far, but... Hmm. And I understand the appeal. It very much depicts the ambiguity of the West hmm. and the hardship of cattle driving and hmm. the psychology of cowboys. And I mean, there's a lot there. This series is my dad's favorite. Oh. And it was made into a series in 1989. So then we get Dancing with Wolves in 1990, which beats out Blazing Saddles as far as the box office. Oh, Kevin Costner is both actor and director of this film, and it makes a big impact, I think partly because it's the first time we get a correct perspective from the Native side. This is the Cowboys and Indians pattern, but we've never seen it like this from their side before. It's still from the perspective of a white man, but... That's without saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much sympathetic and authentic to the Native side. So maybe mm. that's a, a big deal. And once we're entering the 90s, it is more about authenticity and historic accuracy than anything else. Interesting. Uh, other notable stuff, the remake of True Grit 2010, mm. Django Unchained, which was also a type of a remake from the original spaghetti western, Django, that was made in 2012. Mm. That gives us a good idea of sort of the modern iterations of the Western. Do you want to tell us about our first late era? Yes. So my choice was a film called Woman Walks Ahead that was shot in 2017 in New Mexico. Ooh. It doesn't take place in New Mexico, however. It takes place in the Dakotas. A quick plot summary of this. Uh, it's based on historic events. This woman, Carolyn Weldon, is an American portrait painter who travels from New York to the Dakotas in the 1890s to paint a portrait of Sitting Bull, an aging Lakota leader who was near surrender in the Battle of Lands with the American army. While painting his portrait, Weldon inadvertently helps the Lakota people survive starvation by using her wealth and her status, mainly. But she also convinces Sitting Bull to attempt to vote against a relocation treaty. In the film, they play with this idea that the Lakota people were fighters first and foremost. They aren't used to making treaties, and typically they were the most violent, actually, of all the Plains Indians. But there's a few interesting scenes where she is convincing Sitting Bull that there's other options, like peaceful options, and that he kind of has to take that because there's no way they could beat the modern weapons of the white man. It's just, it won't happen. They will be massacred, and mm. he realizes that. Unfortunately, though, despite him deciding to try the peaceful way, Weldon discovers that diplomacy is not enough because the army is super begrudged and biased at this time. They just need they need all of the natives out and it's going to happen however they need to make it happen. So one of Sitting Bull's final acts is to vote against the treaty. But it, of course, it goes nowhere. That to me is the most tragic part of this movie is because they were willing mm. to do it the white way, the white way, not the right way, the mm. white way. Yes. <laughs> and they were still mm. killed for it. And I thought that was so fucking tragic and messed up. And unfortunately, in history and in the movie, Sitting Bull is shot and killed, unarmed and without protest, by a white officer. And the final text of the film actually concludes that weeks later, his people too are shot down at Wounded Knee, 
And then Weldon's portrait is hung in some like famous art studio um, in New York. And I think it's still there, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So it sort of like immoralizes Sitting Bull, but that's not enough to make up for this tragic thing. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, in my opinion, because we screened this movie at the screen (laughs) at the theater I used to work Mm. for. And I remember I just thought it was a wonderful and needed Mm. perspective because even Dances with Wolves, like I said, is from the white man's perspective. This movie, there's none of that. It's a white woman, and then it's Sitting Bull is the main character, who is a native in real life as well. The actor is native. Mm. So nice. there's a lot of good, authentic things happening here, and they're trying to be true to the historic events. All of it's good, in my opinion. And the director is Susanna White, my woman, yay. Yay. The writer, Stephen Knight, and the actors are Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain. And Sitting Bull is Michael Gray Eyes. That's awesome. Definitely. This one is not, I don't think, based on any book, as far as I can tell. But, hmm. it, you know, all of these events are pretty historically accurate. The pattern it follows is very much the cowboys versus Indians or cavalry versus inter- Indians, like we mentioned. But this one's also in an unconventional way, right? Because it's from the native perspective in this case, which is untraditional of this pattern. There's moments that feel like preachy as far as like white savior yeah. type goes. Because, you know, I could see how the main female character, Weldon's character, is a little. But I don't know if that's a problem. It could be a problem. I don't know. Historically, that's it's true that her wealth and status did a lot for the Lakota people while yeah. she was there. And it was a big deal to have representation for the natives in the East and in their politics saying like, this is what's happening in the West. They need a sympathizer. And she was one of them. Mm. So you could call it a white savior type, you know, pros and cons. <laughs> and it's not successfully a white savior story, which ah brings up a lot of different things. But for me, obviously, it brings up the fact that no matter her status, she's still a woman. And there's a correlation that they draw in the movie between a woman and a native person in status. That is exactly one of my themes. Okay. Status of the underdog because they are both underdogs Uh, you're right mm. and the it's interesting because i would call this a relationship exploration as well just like true grit Mm. parts of it they're trying to romanticize it and in my opinion that Mm -hmm. i don't think that was necessary and i'm glad they don't overplay that because it's more about identity and accepting like a new status in their lives because sitting bull and he mentions this quite often which is like all of the original respect of a chief it has gone when you're overthrown, when you've been mm. conquered, your old way is gone. So a chief, mm. even though his people respect him, you know, he, he needs to walk first. He needs to speak first. Mm. When he wears his skins and his feathers, it's a big deal. But the white men would never acknowledge any of that. They don't respect him. That It's it's accepting that you can't be the tribal soldier that you once were, leader, soldier. Because like I said, they were they were pretty violent as far as tribes go. And to be reduced Hmm. to just, like, having to take it from the white man, that's a harsh status drop. And then in Caroline's case, it's interesting, too, because she's coming – hers is a little different because it is very much a feminist story. Hmm. Her husband didn't allow her to paint. Like, she mentions it. She's like, I was a famous painter, and she was. She got commissioned to do portraits for wealthy and political people. She had to stop when she was married. Stupid. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense to me. It wasn't appropriate. You know what's not appropriate? This paintbrush going right up your butt. That's not appropriate. (laughs) 
really though because the story kind of begins there she's reading a letter that she sent to the west to the soldiers of the west saying i'm coming because one thing i really need to do now is paint sitting bull there's no portrait of him where they're all gone like she realizes what's happening she's still innocent to how to yeah. do it which is it's a compelling mm-hmm. part of the story because she has to learn and yeah. get beaten up for it too at one point and robbed and robbed like she goes through some <laughs> major down points but it, it takes away her innocence of the immediacy of what's happening with the plains indians hmm. because lakota are one of the last to be relocated and they've been uh, the end is brutal and the information after the end is brutal and it's just like why why like it's just wow and here you have a big change of the romance of the hollywood western to the modern day western which is trying to be exactly accurate and there's still pessimism there that that cynicism that we got from the spaghetti westerns it's there yeah but now it's historically accurate which makes it all the more hard to watch worse yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. in a cinema story Having traditionally violent people who try peace is usually rewarded, right? You expect to be like, oh, the Lakota people are taking a big chance and and she changed Sitting Bull. Mm -hmm. That means maybe he can be melted and, you know, he can accept change, which actually he does a lot of in the movie as well. Definitely. There's this dynamic of him becoming a potato farmer, Mm -hmm. which kind of disgusts his tribesmen. They're like, what are you doing? You're giving in. We used to hunt buffalo. Yeah. And now we're growing potatoes. Like, this is embarrassing. Yeah. And there's this turn that he takes where he's realizing, like, I, I do. I need to be a leader again. Otherwise, we're just giving up. Another Batman moment. They need him to be a leader. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think some parts, or maybe it's just how the actor portrayed it, but some part of him, I think, knows that it won't end in their favor no matter what they do. Yeah. So might as well go down fighting. Yeah. And he gave people hope. Yeah, exactly. And that scene of them voting against the treaty was important, too, Mm. because it had to do with him bringing in his influence again. Several chiefs who came in to represent their tribes, but they all went silent when Sitting Bull arrived. Mm. And he's wearing his feathers and his skins like like Mm -hmm. he's going into battle, but it's a peaceful version of this because Mm. he comes in, he sits like Sitting Bull does. (laughs) And he says, we will not accept the treaty mm-hmm. and the rest of the people. And they have like the green, what is it? Like a green line and a red line. Like mm-hmm. if you vote against, go to the green. All of the tribes people flood to the green. I was really scared in that scene. I was so scared. I was like, please don't line up and oppose it. Because that's just like asking for a massacre. Like I was expecting things to go really badly. So when that didn't happen, I was like, Phew. and then it got worse later. So I was like, okay. I wish they had gone a little less sensual with it and made it more platonic, but still have that closeness of friendship because it felt a little too icky, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I know she's a woman, but white, wealthy woman of privilege wanting to go be with the Indians for a little while, tourism, you know, and then leave. And I don't like that implication, mm-hmm. but I, I do like that they sort of, I like it in the platonic sense that they have this sort of, they start to understand one another and each other in doing so. Okay. This is how I would have done it. I rewrote it as soon as I watched it. <laughs> I like the fact that she hugs him. There's a moment where yeah. she's completed the painting. They're in front of it. She's talking about, you know, let's go to the East because you need to leave. They're going to mm-hmm. kill you sort of moment. <laughs> you know, those moments. Yeah. These moments. 
but like the things that she says to him sound so much like a like a white wife. Mm. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We we grew from that. Like you're the hardworking woman. He says it, and yeah. What I would have kept was the fact that she hugged him. Mm. Like it's an action. I don't want her to like have this weird dialogue that doesn't fit her character <laughs> mm-hmm. growth, her character arc. But I liked the way he reacted to her hugging him mm. because it didn't have to be a romantic thing. Right. But it's the fact that like a white woman is hugging me. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I can go out and die. That's the part I would have kept. Hmm. I think it would have made it even more poignant, although it was pretty poignant. The end where she's like running through the snow and the soldier guy's like, you're not going to make it. And she runs anyway. And she's like, that's really her moment of like coming into her own where she's pushed herself. She's been beaten up by this point and she's been threatened and like she's hardened up because of the West. She, She really puts everything into getting there in time and she doesn't. And I think that's partially the brutality of the West. And I think it's nice that 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 was from a platonic respect, not necessarily a romantic interest. And I I don't necessarily know if it was just a romantic interest thing, but I don't know if you would do that for just a romantic interest. So, gosh, I had one one last note, which I thought was really interesting. The other thing I appreciate about this film is the spatial awareness. Hmm. And the repeating conversations of given names, we hear things like hmm. Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse was the other chief. And then the moment she's given her name is when she's come back from the town having been beat up. Hmm. She's coming in and out of consciousness. There's this little girl that comes up to her and says, thank you for feeding us. Woman walks ahead. Like She says it in English. And then they start calling her in, in their language, woman walks ahead. And it's great because they set up that moment at the beginning. She's walking in front of Sitting Bull and he's saying, like, what what are you doing? Like, you can't you can't walk in front of me like I'm a chief. <laughs> and then there was one moment where she starts like walking behind him and he says, well, you can't walk behind either because you I look like I'm <laughs> taking you prisoner. <laughs> and she's like, oh, OK, I guess I'll just like, where do I go? And, he's, and this is beautiful, too. His response is side by side would be fine. Yes. And I was yes. like, oh my gosh. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> they have a couple really cute, kind of funny moments. Yeah. Like, he's like, I can't let them see that you're making the decision. <laughs> She's like, oh. <laughs> I like that they call that out yeah. as what it is. Like, it's being ridiculous. And I like that they call it out because it, it becomes like a joke. And it's like, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I love it. There's a lot of spatial things happening that I think yeah. is, is good to be like a thematic through line. Yeah. Yeah, which makes sense because that's like the the meta storyline is space and where these people are should go or should stay or should be moved or not moved. And exactly. space is a big thing. And it's like the West is supposed to be vast. And yet we're killing people and trying to take them away from their homes. God, you're right. It's just very frustrating. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, so we are on to our last film of the late era, which is from 2020. It's called News of the World. A Civil War veteran agrees to deliver a girl taken by the Kiowa people years ago to her aunt and uncle against her will. They travel hundreds of miles and face grave dangers as they search for a place that either can really call home. 
Uh, we begin the film with an introduction of Tom Hanks's character, Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, who is a former Confederate officer. So he's a Confederate. He makes money by going from town to town in Texas and reading the news for a dime a person. When he finds Cicada or Johanna, however you want to say it, he takes her into the next town to find out how to get her home. And he's told he can wait three months or he can take her himself. Not able or willing to wait or take her. He drops her off with his friends and for her to stay with them. And it doesn't take very long for her to ditch them. And she wants to stay with the captain. So a lot like True Grit, we have this dynamic of a young girl and a hardened older man with a violent past, which is interesting. In this case, the girl can't speak English. She speaks Kiowa and sometimes German. And the captain finds out about her past little by little. And one of the things that I thought was really poignant about her is said by an, a woman who's a friend of the captain that she's um, an orphan twice over. And that's just so like heartbreaking. They're pursued by sex traffickers who Joanna slash Cicada also helps kill. She helps the captain kill them because they weren't going to ever stop. And they just kind of go from like one hardship to another as they cross Texas and go to her aunt and uncle who she doesn't even know, which is really bonkers. News of the World came out in 2020. It was directed by Paul Greengrass who also wrote the screenplay with Luke Davies. It's based on the 2016 book News of the World by Paulette Giles. Giles is an interesting person. She writes mainly Western novels and poetry, and she worked with the indigenous peoples of the north, the far north of Ontario and Quebec for like a decade. And she learned one of the native languages there, which is kind of cool. And her latest book is from 2020. And it's actually about two characters that we see in News of the World. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And the film stars Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel. I had a hard time defining exactly what story type this was from, this was from Gruber's list, but I asked Charlotte about it. Thank you, Charlotte. Hey. And we agreed <laughs> that it has elements from Custer's Last Stand, but there's some interaction between the two, but there's not a lot between like the whites and the natives there is an underlying theme obviously for joanna slash cicada and the kiowa do make more than one appearance and the film doesn't really fit into the other patterns specifically outlined by by gruber a lot of it's just variations of the patterns because it's the newest film on our list it kind of makes sense to me that it's going to be the most deviated from and i i wonder how many other films in the next couple years and even in the last two or three years are going to be more like that like how far are we going to get away from these standard patterns i think we should talk about that and then i'd like to talk about the ending but is, is there anything we want to like do you want to tell me what you think Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree with that. The only other category I thought was maybe the Marshall story. Not that Tom Hanks' character mm -hmm. is a Marshall, but he is ex-soldier. So he knows how to keep the law, keep order, especially while he's traveling. You can tell even when he's delivering the news, I realized mm -hmm. when I was reflecting on this, it's like when he reads the news, there's always a reaction by the town, whether it's good because the story is entertaining, it's bad because they're on the wrong side yeah. of the Civil War or they were bitter about losing something. He knows how to handle the crowd. It's kind of amazing. And it's not like that's part of his job. But as a person, he understands he can sympathize mm -hmm. or he can do the opposite, which is there was this moment he comes into a town that's mm -hmm. belittling their labor force. And he's threatened to the point where he's made to read the false news. 
and he won't do it. He instead says like, oh, well, in, an, uh, in other news, there's this town that rallies against their freaking, you know, labor emperors. <laughs> mm-hmm. And suddenly this town is, gets rebelled up. Crazy. They're like, oh my gosh, you're right. If somebody else can do it, so can we. Let's protest. Yeah. It's interesting because as a person, he is fascinating in his methods and he won't be violent unless he needs to be. Tom Hanks is perfect for that. I mean, there's some movies where I'm like, Tom Hanks, why did you agree to this? This one, I understand completely. <laughs> you were the best for this yeah. and I'm glad they cast you for it. It's That was my first thought. Yeah. That scene in particular, it's like, damn, dude, he like started yeah. a riot, which is just hilarious. <laughs> but also like, oh my God, what are you right? doing? Right? It was pretty... Yeah, radical. And I I do like that about him, that even though he's like this kind of confederate, old timey dude, that he when he sees something wrong, he he calls it out in his own way, like you said. I would like to mention the ending. Well, this is one of the happiest endings. It comes very quick at the end, and it doesn't really fit the pace of the film. Oh, interesting. And it's almost too happy. Which is weird to say. Like, I'm glad that it's happy, and I like that it's happy, and I'm really glad that, like, they didn't die. Like, that's great. <laughs> and that they're together, and, like, he's even more into reading the news, and he, like, involves her, and they really become, like, a team. I think that's awesome. But I think it also sort of suffers, the film suffers from one too many things happening in a row. There isn't a moment where we get to kind of slow down and like drop into things because it's constantly one thing after another one thing after another it's like what they leaned into the like what can go wrong will go wrong theme but i do think that it also really highlights the brutality of the time like it's not just that there are brutal people or brutal elements but like literally everything is brutal like riding a wagon is brutal and walking and running in a sandstorm for instance a riot like guns and shooting the animal killings are just awful And it's just, it shows you like this tapestry of brutality and how difficult it is to survive in this world. I can't imagine like putting everything that you care about on a wagon train and trying to cross 400 miles through like every single worst condition you can think of. And I really do think that even though it was a little heavy handed with that, that in the end, it really does show you that like this is not romanticized. This is painful and even though it suffers from a layer of hollywoodism it doesn't quite go to the point of you can't watch it because it's painful it does kind of give you a preview into some of those things although i will have to say the the scene with the buffaloes was very difficult to watch yeah that like haunts me a bit so if you're very sensitive about animal stuff just skip over that part I understand that about the ending as well. I think I was, I have been watching so many Westerns. (laughs) So I think before I watched News of the World, I was bombarded with the grit of most Western endings. So maybe I felt more relieved than anything. And you're right, Mm. it is very Hollywood and maybe a little too sentimental, but it was different than most of the Westerns I've been watching. And maybe I appreciated it. There's a lot of really, like we skipped over a lot, obviously, in all of these films. There's some really great moments in all of them, I think, that you really appreciate when you watch it for yourself. So definitely, if they sound interesting, even if it's not a genre that you would normally watch, like me, I I love Westerns, but I I love reading them. I haven't seen a lot of them. And a lot of these are now on my favorites list. Like I, I could definitely watch them more than once sort of thing. He made his blazing saddle a torch to light the way. 
But the thing is, even if you're not into this particular genre, the tropes, characters, discussions that came from them are iconic and part of the building blocks of other genres, other fictional stories, other movies in general. Like it's everywhere. You cannot avoid Western tropes because they defined what we consider our contemporary storytelling. It, I mean, that's why they call it the myth of the West, because they are the ones who romanticize these very deep and open-ended conversations. It would be weird to try to avoid it if you're any sort of storyteller. It, it's worth it, even if you don't think you like Westerns, you know? You can dislike actors and some tropes, that's fine, but that's not all the, what the Western is. It's It's vast. Like the West. Like the West. <laughs> and that's that's exactly what I was going to say, is that, like, there's so much we didn't cover. And that includes, like, the spaghetti westerns, westerns with women, the scores of westerns, musical westerns, comedies, the Europeans, sci-fi, and, of course, the space western, which I think is the most up-to-date version. You know, we have Star Wars, which is space cowboys. I mean, we are telling these stories, you're right, just in a different frame. Yes. Agreed. And they should be changing. Things that don't change, die. That's right. Just like a bad guy in the West. Okay. That's... <laughs> <laughs> As always, we want to thank all of our listeners and our patron penbiters and supporters. Thank you for engaging with us. If you haven't already, you can connect with us on Patreon.com, Twitter, and Facebook. And, of course, a gigantic thank you to our patron penbiters. That's Jeanette M., Jesse M., and Thunderfly. And I'm going to say one more Western thing, and that's caps off buckaroos. See all those words printed in a line, one after the other? Put them all together, and you have a story. Story. Stories. <laughs> <laughs>